0: Uh, uh, I been tryna reel it in, so tell him pay me My brother took offense, I told him he was lazy I been tryna make it out before they slay me They be the ones you least expect, this shit be crazy Told him I was built to win, quit and name me uh, I could give a fuck about what they rate me We used to be so in love, now she hate me I like not want a nigga, baby, this shit crazy Went did that shit again, I put it all in My brother's only one's gonna catch me if I fall in You, welcome to the first episode of Legal Feet This is your host, the Golden One There's no arguing about the explosion of sneaker collecting and shoe fashion Into being mainstream following the turn of the century This podcast will examine the intersectionality of the sneaker world and the law Join us on this trip as we explore patents, copyrights, trademarks, contracts, and many more areas of the law that have influenced and shaped sneaker culture. On this particular episode, we're gonna be taking a deep dive into the history of sneakers. This journey through the history of sneakers is gonna take us all the way back to the beginning to look at the creation of sneakers and all of the innovations that they have went through over the years to actually become what we see as sneakers, we'll also look at some notable cases as it relates to their protectability of sneakers, their designs, their logos, and some notable shoe deals. Now, as we walk through the history of sneaks, we gotta start in 1832, where Wade Webster patented a process to cement rubber shoes to leather shoes. Back across the pond though, John Dunlap was experimenting with bonding canvas to rubber, creating the very first plimsoll shoes. These flimsy, cheap, lightweight shoes were ideal for their purpose of being beach shoes, but nothing more. However, in a few years, In 1839, Charles Goodyear would discover the process of vulcanization. This process of heating rubber and mixing it with sulfur to make it more pliable could extend the life of a shoe far beyond the initial expectation laid forth by all of his predecessors. Like The perfecting of this process would take a few years, so it didn't get fully finalized and patented until 1844. Leading into the first major leap forward into our modern concept of sneakers came When J.W. Foster would add spikes to the bottom of plimsolls to provide greater traction for athletes The next major step in the development of sneakers came around 1892 with the release of Keds Keds was the combination of canvas and rubber soles during a time when that combination was still considered uncommon. Right around this time, these rubber sole shoes began to get the moniker of sneakers because of their ability to decrease the sound of one walking, making it easier to sneak around. After the cads released and their popularity skyrocketed, Converse decided to double up releasing another iconic banger in 1917 when they released their indoor gym sneaker, the All-Stars. However, they didn't remain indoor gym sneakers long because once people, once Hoopers started to try them out on the court and was like, these were amazing. Converse just ran with it. So they endorsed Chuck Taylor to go on a nationwide promo tour promoting the All-Stars. And it did so well that the All-Stars even took on a new name, the Chuck Taylor All-Stars. At the same time that Converse was gathering a chokehold on America's sneaker, there was a German company making some major waves, Gita. Gita... Um, Although in the major scheme didn't hold a lot of weight, what Gita did provide upon its destruction was the birth of two major contributors in the modern sneaker world, being Adidas and Pumas. The next major leap for sneakers came when New Balance became the first sneaker company to incorporate scientifically testing their sneakers and their promotions of them and the final domino to fall to get us to where we are currently at for the modern sneaker world came in 1964 with the arrival of the almighty nike nike as a company revolutionized how companies partner with athletes and promote their sneakers and that started when they fully decided jordan was him now on to some notable cases as it pertains to the protectability of sneakers. The first one we're going to look at is going to be Star Athletica versus Varsity Brands. This case mainly focuses on the scope of copyright as it relates to designs. A copyright protects an original work of authorship fixed in any tangible medium of expression. In this particular case, like Varsity Brands had designed and manufactured a line of cheerleading uniforms. They had obtained the copyrights for it, but Star Athletica decided they was going to release their own line of cheerleading uniforms, almost identical to the ones that Varsity had copyrighted. This ended up with Varsity suing Star, alleging a violation of their copyright. Among a couple other things, Star counterclaimed accusing Varsity of making fraudulent representations to the copyright office as they knew that the designs were not eligible to be copyrighted. The Supreme Court ruled that the federal copyright protection does extend to designs appearing on the actual cheerleader uniforms. In conjunction with this ruling, the Supreme Court put forth a new test for determining whether a design is eligible for copyright protection. Quote, a feature incorporated into a design of a useful article is eligible for copyright protection only if one can be perceived as a two or three dimensional work of art separate from the useful article and two would qualify as a protectable pictorial graphic or sculptural work either on its own or fixed in some other tangible medium of expression if it were imagined separately from the useful article in which it is incorporated, unquote. So, boiling all that down, under this new standard, varsity's copyright protection only extends to the designs on their fabric and not the actual like dimensions of the uniform. So they can't prohibit anybody from making a uniform with the same V shape neckline, the same regular dimensions of it. However, they can cop can like stop somebody from copying the designs and the shapes that they put on to the basic platform of the cheerleaders uniform. This is a major deal for the apparel industry as prior to this, like fashion designs weren't considered copyrightable at all. But now under the star Athletica ruling, if you can meet those two very simple qualifications, you are now eligible to copyright your designs. This ruling was so massive that it was essentially the whole foundation for Adidas as they won their case to copyright the Yeezy 350 boost versions one and two. Yeah, these next couple cases center on the issue of trademarks. Trademark allows a business to protect their product in any feature that distinguishes them from others in the same industry. The first of these cases we're going to check out is Adidas v. Payless. The major focus of this case is trade dress. Trade dress is a sub element of trademark that focuses on the overall appearance and feel of a particular product. In this case, Payless imitated some iconic silhouettes from the Adidas catalog, such as like the Superstar, the Tuscany, the Country Ripple, and more. And like, instead of trying to like make their own designs, they took those designs and altered the three-stripe variation, turning them into two or four stripes to try to distinguish themselves. Payless tried to argue that there wasn't any real likelihood of confusion between Adidas like three-stripe trademark and their two and four-stripe counterfeits. But anybody with common sense knew that there was. And under the Lanham Act, the only question that they tried to say was presented was, would a reasonably prudent consumer, a one who like used like good judgment or common sense when purchasing goods would likely be confused. The court reasoned, that in order to determine the likelihood of confusion, they would need to utilize the sleek craft factors for evaluation. These factors include, one, the similarity of the marks, two, the relatedness of the party's goods, three, the similarity of trade and marketing channels, four, the strength of the plaintiff's marks, five, the defendant's intent, six, evidence of actual confusion, 7. The degree of care exercised by the average person. And 8. The likelihood of expansion into other markets. When all of this was assessed and reached this conclusion, the case was determined that Payless acted in a manner that was willful and malicious and disregarded Adidas' trademark and their trade dress rights, granting damages to Adidas. This was massive for the sneaker industry, as it now provides protection for sneaker brands from others just trying to knock off their designs and just kind of having them bite that bullet. The latter of the trademark cases we're going to look at in this episode is Christian Louis versus Yves Saint Laurent. The major focus of this case is on the ability to obtain a trademark through the development of a secondary meaning for the product or feature of the product. This case hinges on does the signature red bottoms of Louis Vuitton grant them a trademark? Like this came as a result of YSL attempting to create their own line of like monochromatic red shoes. Louis Vuitton felt as though this was a violation of their red shoe trademark, so they sued YSL. Their lawsuit sought the preliminary injunction of YSL from selling their shoes. The trial court initially rejected this preliminary injunction, citing that a single color could never serve as a trademark in the fashion industry. This ruling was clearly appealed by Christian Louis Vuitton. And upon this appeal, the Second Circuit's Court of Appeals reversed in part and affirmed in part. They reversed on the sense that a color could never be trademarked by a company holding that the red show trademark had, quote, acquired a limited secondary meaning as a distinctive symbol that identifies the Louis Vuitton brand, unquote. However, this ruling was not like all encompassing. It came with a very clear line of limitations put on it. And this clear line was that this red outsole had to contrast with the rest of the shoe to fall into the scope of Louis Vuitton's trademark. So shoes that are all one color, such as YSL's red monochromatics high heels were good to go, but another company could not try to make A tan shoe with red outsoles, because it would create additional confusion as to whether that was Louis Vuitton or not. This was massive, as it allows companies to obtain trademarks for colors which were perceived as impossible and logos, generic ones, as long as like they develop a secondary meaning as being sort of an identifier for a specific company or brand. Now, while there are no shortage of notable deals that have influenced how we look at sneakers, in this section, we are gonna briefly skim over three pivotal ones. The first one we're gonna briefly touch on in this section is Converse's endorsement deal with Chuck Taylor to promote their All-Stars. We're starting with this specific deal Because this was the first major sneaker deal between a company and an athlete. This sneaker deal was so massive in terms of its influence in making the All-Stars as successful as they have grown to be. That the company literally changed the name of the sneakers to the Chuck Taylor All-Stars. On top of them changing the name of the sneakers, they have even adorned the shoe with Chuck Taylor's signature. And it's still on there a century later. So in their pioneering efforts to create this relationship between athletes and sneakers, no list talking about influential deals would be accurate if you didn't include this Converse Chuck Taylor deal on it. The second notable deal we are gonna briefly look at is Jordan's deal with Nike. Now the list of reasons why this deal is notable is way too long to touch on all the reasons. Besides all of the financial success that they've had together with Jordan dwarfing all other athletes in endorsement deal money, even while being retired for two decades now, ignoring all of the ways in which their partnership has revolutionized how companies go about endorsements and partnerships with athletes and overlooking everything Jordan has done As an athlete on the court, this deal is still arguably the most influential and notable deal in the sneaker industry, simply due to its sheer influence in pushing sneaker culture into the forefront of the fashion world. Like this part started off with this brass introduction that these rebellious sneakers standing against the archaic rules of the NBA but somehow transitions into these juggernauts of style and cultural pieces that everybody not only wanted but needed. This partnership even altered how you go about advertising and dealing with celebrities as it relates to sneaker companies, turning all of like Jordan's release dates from just a release of a shoe into a cultural event that everybody needed to be there for. The final notable deal that we gonna briefly highlight in this section is between Cheryl Swoops and Nike. This deal is notable as it's the first deal that gave a female athlete her own signature shoe, the Air Swoops. This deal needs to be mentioned along with all the other game-changing deals as it serves to establish that These sort of like massive rewards for reaching a mountaintop can be attained by anybody and like breaks the stigma that like immortalizing feats as having your own signature through isn't exclusive just to males. With that, we out of here. Appreciate you all for tuning in and I'm going to catch you all on the next one.